Good morning. Rise up, people of God, and receive the word that God has prepared for you today. Today we're uh, reading from 1 Kings 19, 9 to 12. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me, too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. May this be added to your heart. We're concluding our four-week series on the life of Elijah, and uh, there's a lot more about his life in the Bible, but we've been looking at the four key prayers that he prayed during his ministry, and uh, when James talks about Elijah, he says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and that's certainly true with Elijah. His prayers were very powerful, very effective. And uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, the passage, part of which was read today. It's actually different than the one that's mentioned in the bulletin, I think that was last week's. But uh, today we're going to take on uh, the passage that goes, follows after that. So let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who listens to us, that you want to communicate with us and that you're willing to enter into a, a relationship with us where our prayers also become powerful and effective. And so, Lord, we, we long to experience these things, and we long to know how to live more effective lives for you, because uh, this world needs a good dose of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And may we be the people who help make that happen, especially through our prayers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when Elijah prayed and the fire fell before a live audience on Mount Carmel, it was one of the most dramatic demonstrations of God's power in the Old Testament. And it changed everything. Or did it? The showdown on Mount Carmel was followed by three very shocking events, maybe four. It says in verse 38, uh, when the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, 
and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Spoiler alert, that's a sneak preview of the final sequel of planet Earth when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mount Carmel was just a dress rehearsal. And everyone on the mountain that day knew that God was not dead. He wasn't even sick. In fact, he was roaring like a lion. Verse 40 in chapter 18 says that when then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. That's the first shocking event. The prophets, the false prophets, were brought out down into the valley and slaughtered there. Now this is something that our generation absolutely can't understand. Is that God has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to sin and evil. Sure, he is patient and long-suffering. But that is best before judgment day. Elijah didn't tell the false prophets to get a good lawyer. Because God will not accept a plea bargain or negotiate a conditional surrender. When judgment falls, it is swift and it is final. And there will be no appeals, no instant replay. That judgment is under further review. So can you imagine Ahab standing there, overwhelmed by shock and awe? He was sure that he would be next. But God had other plans for him. As we read in verses 41 to 44, Elijah began to pray that the rain would return. And it was a, a very intense prayer because it wasn't happening. He prayed seven times. And then after the prayer, he said to <clears throat> Ahab, Hitch your chariot and go down before the rain stops, verse 44. And so the drought was about to end. Verse 45 says, Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain, rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, that's a real superhero, faster than a speeding chariot. Elijah must have had some high-powered fuel, maybe a mixture of anointing and adrenaline. And of course, now everything had changed. The promised land could be restored as the kingdom of God, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, not yet, because you need to get ready for the second shock. There was one more matter to take care of. It was the queen of broken hearts, verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel, realizing that all was lost, ran for her life, disappearing into the night and was never seen again. That's what should have happened. But this is not a fairy tale. This is real life. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, Congratulations on your victory. Please spare my life. I promise I will never misbehave again. Not exactly. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. That's amazing, shocking. And it's a very important insight into the nature of evil. Because the powers and principalities of darkness are very territorial. They will not repent. They do not retreat. They remain defiant to the very end. You see this uh, in the war criminal tri trials that have taken place throughout history, after the Holocaust or after a genocide. There's no remorse among the guilty. And given the chance, they'd probably do it again. Jezebel wasn't thinking of surrender. She was only interested in revenge. So she threatened Elijah's life. And Elijah didn't see that coming. It caught him by surprise. And it resulted in the third shock. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. <laughs> that can't be right. Elijah, you've just beaten the prophets of Baal. You've brought back the rain. You've outraced the chariot. What are you going to do now? Well, he wasn't going to go to Disney World. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I think a sentence like this testifies to the truth of the Bible. Because God's word does not censor the failings of its heroes. The Bible does not conceal embarrassing information that might demoralize the troops. The Bible tells us nothing but the truth. Because this is exactly what happened. Elijah, maybe for the first time ever, was afraid. And he ran for his life. Which would prove the assertion of James 5.17 that Elijah was really just like us. So far, that didn't sound like a plausible hypothesis. Elijah wasn't anything like us. His prayers controlled the climate. He raised the dead. He called on fire from heaven. We don't have anything like that on our resume. Elijah wasn't like us. He was invincible, unbreakable, until he crashed and burned. And then he became afraid, and he ran for his life. Now, in one sense, it actually does seem logical based on metabolism alone. Because the confrontation on Carmel was very intense. That would have taken a lot out of him. I don't know how many of you have ever dealt with uh, some manifestation of evil, but it is very, very exhausting. And then there was that execution. And then Elijah still had enough adrenaline to outrun a chariot. And after he did that, he still did 10 laps and 100 push-ups. No, he hit the wall. I mean, after burning maybe 10,000 plus calories, he was finished. This prayer warrior had no fight left in him. It's one thing to breathe fresh air when you're ascending a mountain. It's another thing to descend back down into the polluted valleys. You know, when you have a spiritual high and then you have to go back to school with all of its temptations, or back to the office with all of its gossip, or back to your family with all of their conflicts. That's why some of us burn up on re-entry. 
Elijah, the overcomer, was himself overcome. Jezebel should have been running for her life, but it was Elijah who was headed for the nearest exit. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed. Here's the fourth prayer. Prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, I'm not going to ask how many people have prayed this prayer because I think almost all of our hands would go up if we're honest. Lord, I've had enough. Take me, beam me up, Scott. You know, I've, I've finished. This is the fourth prayer that we've looked at in this series, and it's the first one that God didn't answer. He prayed that he might die. Elijah, shame on you. You should know better. Come on, man, walk it off. But Elijah was just like us. He got discouraged, and he got so depressed, he just wanted to die. That's what happens when we are overwhelmed by despair, when it seems like there's no hope. And that's something that can happen to anybody. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He talked about the hardships he suffered. He said, we were under great pressure beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If you are discouraged, if you get depressed, if you struggle with despair, do not be surprised because none of us are immune. The important thing is the process of recovery. And that's really what this passage is all about because this is what recovery looks like. I have experienced recovery, real recovery, serious recovery, about eight times in my life as a pastor. And each time I thought, I'm never going to get over this. This is, this is the end. I'm finished. I can't go on. Every single time I felt that. And each time, God brought me through recovery. And this passage especially helps us understand what that looks like. Verse 5, then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. The first thing Elijah needed to do was to replenish his body chemistry. If I don't get enough sleep, no amount of encouragement is going to motivate me to go on. I cannot function without sleep. Restoration often begins with the body. You need rest, and you need food. So whatever happened to church potluck suppers? When do we eat? Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And once the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake. This is where we get angel food cake. There was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. More sleep. I don't know if we can get enough, enough sleep. Most of us don't get anywhere near enough. 
We are finite human beings. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. If our body is out of gas, it doesn't matter what our spirit wants to do. That's why it's so important that if, if you stayed up too late last night, you're not going to get much out of church on Sunday morning. The most important part about church on Sunday morning is the amount of sleep you got to prepare yourself to come to the Lord's presence to receive everything he has for you. If you're worn out before you get here, it's not going to happen. And that's a shame because God has something for you. Restoration often begins with the body. You will not be spiritually healthy if you neglect your body. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. More food. Verse 8, so he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. For the next 40 days, Elijah just walked. And for those 40 days, there were no crises. He had no responsibilities. There were no pressures and no threats. Elijah just walked. Didn't have a cell phone. No one could contact him. He was totally in solitude because solitude is extremely therapeutic. Would you like to have 40 days off? No responsibilities, no pressures, no demands. Doesn't that sound healing? Solitude is so therapeutic. It gave Elijah time to defragment his heart and install some updates in his mind. And Elijah walked until he reached Horeb. That's Mount Sinai in metric. That's the place where Moses met with God. The mountain was pulsating with that divine heavenly presence. And that really had been Elijah's natural habitat. His experiences with God were dramatic and they were cataclysmic and they were pyrotechnic. But it was all too much. Verse 9 says, There he went into a cave and he spent the night, another good night's sleep. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? This is where I met with Moses. There hasn't been anyone coming back here since then. Joshua and Gideon didn't run away from life and come here. Samson and David and Solomon never left the promised land. Why have you come back here? Well, I think part of it is because recovery takes us back to the beginning. Revelation 2.5 says, Remember the height from which you have fallen, Repent and do the things you've done at first. I don't know how many times I've had to do that. I, can't, I lost count. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. It was time to reboot. Let's start over. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. So Elijah needed to rest, he needed food, and he needed to talk. Restoration is really not that complicated. It's really mostly common sense. And I want you to notice that God didn't try to debrief Elijah right away. He waited 40 days before he began to ask him some questions. 
You see, it's no point trying to reason with a person who is panicking. If someone is having an anxiety attack, just be still. Maybe just, uh, just hold them until they're breathing normally. If someone's heart is broken, if someone's experiencing grief, they don't need to hear a bunch of nice cliches. What they need is someone who understands. Not necessarily someone who says, I know what you're going through. But someone who understands enough to keep quiet. When Job's friends visited him after his tragedy, they sat with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. Can anyone do that anymore? Seven minutes without going to our iPhone is kind of almost a world record time. They sat with him in silence seven days and seven nights. So far, so good. But then they ruined it and started giving him advice. First, you replenish the body. Then you rehabilitate the, the, the heart and renew the mind. After 40 days, it was time to talk. Okay, Elijah, what's on your heart? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. This whole chosen people in the promised land idea, this whole thing has turned out to be a disaster. It's gotten so bad that I'm the only one left. And I'm sure that there are bounty hunters tracking me down right now. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. If I'm the best you got, we are sunk. I'm so finished. I quit. I resign. It's interesting that God didn't interrupt him. When you're traumatized, it's important that you can express everything you feel, that you get it out. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Well, what do you do with someone like that? Elijah, what a disappointment you've turned out to be. I mean, the nation was on the verge of a revival. They just needed someone to lead them, but instead of leading the advance, Elijah retreats. The king of kings should have court-martialed this cowardly deserter. This was treason. But yes, it was. But although Elijah had given up on God's will, God had not given up on him. The revival's going to have to wait. First, we have to heal this wounded soldier. God will put a lot of things on hold just so that you have the time to recover. God is not in a hurry with your health. He'll give you the time that you need. In spiritual recovery, after you've had time to talk, then it's time to listen. And by listening, we reconnect to God's presence. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. 
It was just like Exodus, cataclysmic events, pyrotechnic phenomena, just like Carmel. That's what we need to fix the problems of Israel. Some fire and brimstone will teach them a lesson. But God was not in the wind, and he was not in the earthquake, and he was not in the fire. And then God spoke, verse 12, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. The voice of God was a gentle whisper. And that's the fourth shocking event, a whisper in a decadent generation at a time when wickedness shouts and irreverence screams, how is anybody going to hear a whisper? And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The most important part of restoration and recovery, the most important part is learning how to listen to God. But to do that, we're gonna have to turn down the volume on our iTunes and our iPads and on Netflix. Unfortunately, noise has become our natural habitat. We just can't stand to be in silence. But I don't know how to help you with that because there is absolutely no substitute for listening to God. And because he speaks in a gentle whisper, you're going to have to turn down the other volume. You have to do it. Because God doesn't have to show us anything, but he does have to speak to us. Because in a Christian life, what you see is not as important as what you hear. God does not have to show us anything. Because what we see is not as important as what we hear. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing the message through the word of Christ. All week long we see what the enemy is doing, but that's not as important as what God says to us on Sunday morning. Paul writes, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, for that is temporary, therefore we do not lose heart. What we see often makes us lose heart, but what we hear can restore our soul. For Elijah, the restoration order was first the body, then the heart and mind, and finally the soul. And that came by hearing. Faith is initiated, nourished, and replenished by hearing God's word. And once we hear his word, we don't need a second opinion. We don't have to consider the counter-argument of a qualified spokesman of the opposing viewpoint. God's word is final. And after that court is adjourned and case is closed, God doesn't have to show us anything, but he does have to speak to us. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question, same answer. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Have you noticed that when we're depressed, we tend to repeat ourselves over and over and over? We recite the same 
dreary details to anyone who will listen. Does that help? Does that make it better? Gene Getz writes, persistent repetition doesn't solve emotional problems. If we repeat inaccuracies, they become entrenched in our perception of life. Fear is filled with inaccuracies, and we see a very good example of that right here. When we're upset and we're trying to prove a point, we often exaggerate and overstate our case. Lord, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Well, God responds to that in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. So when you're there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Elijah, it's time to resume our regularly scheduled programming, which was temporarily interrupted by your anxiety attack. You see, Elijah, the kingdom of God is still in business. It, we're not going to foreclose. We're not going to file for bankruptcy. God has never had to cancel any of his projects, especially the one that's mentioned in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I'm, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, that's, that's surprising. That's the most amazing thing, because if you study church history, you wonder why God didn't give up. The church has been a disaster at times. It's been an embarrassment. It's been hopeless. But God kept repairing it and renewing it and restoring it, because God will continue his good work until it's complete. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Boy, there's enough confidence in that to just move us in a power surge from here till the end of the age. We have nothing to fear. So Elijah, here's the deal. We're going to hire three agents who will deal with Jezebel and Ahab, and they'll take care of the unfinished business. And incidentally, just for the record, verse 18, here's where it really gets good. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Wow, 7,000. Elijah claimed he was the only one left. I mean, he was looking around. And he didn't see anybody. He said, I'm the only one left. We fix our eyes not on what is seen. Because we can't see those other 7,000. They're there, but we don't see them. But we just heard God say, they're there. Don't worry about it. Fear always distorts facts and makes us overestimate the power of the enemy. This message could be entitled, Honey, I Shrunk My Faith. Fear is a poor statistician. Elijah was not very good at math. And I'll tell you, that's a perpetual problem in the ministry. I don't know about Gary, but uh, the two main reasons I became a pastor, number one, 
to respond to God's call, and number two, because it didn't involve any math. <laughs> I am not good at, people in ministry are not good at math, and this is, can be traced all the way back to Elijah. This is an honored tradition, all the way back to Elijah. He was hopeless as a mathematician. God said, I reserve 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed down to Baal. You know, if I knew that my crisis was seven times better than I thought it was, it would be so encouraging. And if I knew that it was 70 times better, that would be off the charts. 700, I can't even wrap my head around that. Well, this situation was 7,000 times better than Elijah feared it was. See, this is why we have to listen to God. Because he's the only one who will tell us this. We don't see it. But when we hear it, we know it's true. That's why Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 that's the kind of encouragement that we need in, our dark, in these dark ages. And that's why our top priority is that the faith that comes by hearing, that's when we know that defeat is swallowed up in victory. I don't know how many times God has reminded me of this verse. What if your situation, your crisis, is 7,000 times better than you fear it is? What if it is? Elijah thought he was the last man standing. But really it doesn't matter who is standing. What matters is who is sitting. What matters is who is on the throne. And if he is for us, that's more than enough. 7,000 times, 700,000 times, and much much higher. Doesn't matter who's standing. What matters is who's sitting. Let's pray. God, there are times when our bodies just need to be replenished and our hearts need to recover and our minds need to be renewed and our souls need to be restored. Lord, our perceptions sometimes are so inaccurate. And that's why the most therapeutic, most encouraging experience in life is just to hear your voice so that we can see the situation from your perspective. It doesn't matter what our problem looks like from where we're standing. The only thing that matters is what it looks like from where you're sitting. So all that really matters is the one who is sitting on the throne. To him be all glory and honor and power through Jesus Christ. Amen.